Welcome to Blooming Out on Community Radio, WFHB. Blooming Out is a forum by and for the LGBTQ plus community. Each week we explore the issues, events pertaining to the LGBT community in Indiana, the U.S., and internationally. We speak with guests about human rights, coming out, the legality of being gay, and much more. Blooming Out is a multiple award-winning program here on Community Radio, WFHB. Thanks for listening to Blooming Out. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Blooming Out. I'm Frankie Preslav. I'm Kevin Mosenzade. And I'm Alex Ashkin. And tonight's featured guests are supermoms Susan Caesar and Catherine Brennan of Bloomington, Indiana. We're excited to have them in our studio tonight to talk with us about balancing love, life, family, and relationship, as well as their journey to parenthood. But first, before we begin our conversation with these amazing wife and wife team, Kevin is going to bring us up to date concerning the Supreme Court ruling on Masterpiece Cake Shop and Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Yeah, so let's jump right in. On Monday, the United States Supreme Court issued its long-awaited decision in the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. The case involved a baker who objected to making a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Although the court ruled for the baker, its reasoning should give LGBTQ people hope and spur lawmakers to take action. The baker, Jack Phillips, appealed to the Supreme Court after both the Civil Rights Commission and its Court of Appeals ruled that he had discriminated against a same-sex couple who asked the bakery to make their wedding cake. The Supreme Court's decision to hear the case alarmed civil rights advocates. A strong ruling on behalf of the baker could have upended decades of precedent stating that if a state has a compelling interest in enforcing anti-discrimination laws, even if someone has a strong moral or religious objection to serving someone because of that person's race, sex, or sexual orientation. Fortunately, the Supreme Court's ruling did, did not do that. Justice Kennedy, writing for a 7-2 majority, ruled for Phillips on the narrow ground that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had made a dismissive or disparaging comments about his faith during its hearings and sided in other cases with bakers who declined to put anti-LGBTQ messages on their cakes. The court concluded that the commission's approach to the Philip to Phillips Phillips's beliefs ran afoul of the First Amendment's requirement that officials be neutral toward religion. There is in fact a lot of LGBTQ advocates to se- that celebrate this opinion. The majority begins an analysis by emphasizing that, quote, gay persons and gay couples cannot be treated as social outcasts or as inferior in dignity and worth, unquote. While people are free to voice moral and religious objections, quote, it is a general rule that such such objections do not allow business owners and other actors in the economy and in society to deny protected persons equal access to goods and services under a neutral and generally applicable public accommodations law, unquote. Nonetheless, there are reasons for LGBTQ people to be vigilant. Discrimination against LGBTQ people remains common and widespread, and though the decision in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case is heartening in some respects, it will likely embolden those who wish to turn LGBTQ people away in the future. 
so that kind of opens us up for some discussion here. Um, I know when I heard uh, the ruling in this case, um, the first thing that jumped out to me was the 7-2 decision. And uh, because there are three very liberal justices on the Supreme Court, and so um, that struck me as who betrayed us. <laughs> um, but uh, in, in further looking into it, um, the ruling, I, I really do think it was probably the second best option for the LGBTQ community. Obviously, first being if they would have ruled in the Civil Rights Commission's um, favor and, and upheld the ruling. Um, but as uh, Frankie and I talked about, or, or Wes and I talked about before the show, uh, the Civil Rights Commission is really the one who botched this case. Right, right. Um, because they couldn't keep their personal feelings out of their business. And um, I think it was even just one gentleman out yeah, there that they, yeah. you know, specifically uh, pointed out as someone that uh, had a lot of negative <laughs> things to he say did. and kind of twisted yeah. it around. And, um, you know, I th this could have been a whole nother, you know, outcome if it wasn't for that uh, individual maybe not i don't know yeah. um but the good news is it's it's not what you know when i saw it the first time i was like oh my god you know what does this mean it's it's you know everything is going to stop and then you know started reading a little more and listening to the news and just calming down somewhat and it, it wasn't as bad this the flip side and we can go back on this but mm -hmm. the flip side is that a lot of people don't understand what this is mm -hmm. so there was the um where was this? I think in Tennessee, um, it was a uh, hardware store. He put up no gays allowed, thinking that he now has the right to do that. And I'm sure that's not the only place that this is happening. Mm -hmm. And then he took it down. And I think it actually went back up. He basically said because of his religious rights, he has a right to you know pick and choose on who he wants to serve. Mm -hmm. And then he t and it took the sign down and then it went back up. So I think around the nation, you know, you're going to find – um, probably more discrimination now that this has come out. Um, I don't know if it's going to stand up, but I think it's going to confuse a lot of law enforcement um, folks when they go out with these complaints on how to deal with this. So I don't know. It's like a, a can of worms have been opened, and um, you know, the, it's going to the courts are going to have to decide on on how to handle this or how the, where's the clarification, or maybe they want to confuse the issue, um, which is yeah. I I think there's several different issues to sort of like dissect here which is first as both you and Kevin said the the ruling itself the the court opinion was really more so about the mishandlement by the Colorado anti-discrimination uh association I don't really know about civil that. civil Can you clarify what that was? Um, so basically, to my understanding, as Frankie implied that, there were multiple hearings held by the CADA, um, which is the governing body that makes these rulings on uh, these anti-discrimination cases. And there was actually a history of the of that group actually being pretty, like, fair in a sense of as long as they specifically say I I do not bake wedding cakes for same-sex couples that is okay however 
what sort of came out of this was that there was these public hearings and public records that showed that um, one of the commissioners uh, kind of kept making sort of pointed remarks as to like, why do you frankly believe that like your convictions give you the right to do this and sort of kept pressing this individual. Um, And basically what Justice Kennedy ends up saying is that the way this individual kind of like handled these public hearings was without the correct sort of deference to the First Amendment, the ability, not only the free expression, but uh, to freely practice their religion, that like they more or less argued that this individual was predisposed to sort of uh, declining the individual's uh, beliefs. Furthermore, they stated in these previous cases where they actually ruled in favor of the various service providers, whether it be another baker, uh, caterer, or something like that, in the cases where they did rule in favor of those, um, they actually, most of the people just simply said it it was a conscientious conscientious objection and not a religious objection. So they sort of said, you know, given the language used by one of these commissioners— in addition to the fact that there has been a history of them ruling in favor of a non-religious objection to these cases, kind of created the sense that they were not being appropriately um, sort of neutral to the both parties' beliefs. And sort of that's why they ruled in this in this case against the Colorado Civil Rights Commission because they basically weren't treating people, you know, with the they respect. They showed bias. Yeah. They showed extreme bias in yeah. their remarks that they made. I believe at one point, uh, if I remember correctly, one of the one of the commissioners said that using religious beliefs as a means to discriminate is disgusting or something along yeah, those despicable. lines. Yeah, despicable. Yeah, something along those lines. Basically, it... Comments like that is what cost uh, the Civil Rights Commission this case, and and unfortunately, uh, uh, the opportunity to set a precedent uh, in favor of the LGBTQ community. But I think it's also important to note that with such a um, a conservative leaning Supreme Court, uh, and in this era of politics that we're in, this is about as good of a ruling as we were going to get out of out of the court, unless someone decided that they were going to flip. Um, and so I think I think uh, ruling on narrow grounds was probably the right thing to do here in this case because there were so many, so many very specific details of the case that could not uh, generally apply to other laws and to other cases across the country. And, and listening to the oral arguments at the beginning of the case, which happened months ago, that was what the judges were saying was uh, precedent was the issue. And, and what kind of precedent do we set in ruling on this case? And, and where do we draw that line? And there were so many fine details in this Masterpiece Cake Shop case that at the end of the day, I think a lot of the justices on the court said, we'll hear the case. But after hearing the arguments and thinking about it and, and deliberating on it, that they said, um, we want this thing over with. 
here's here's your ruling, but we're not going to set a precedent with this. Yeah, so we're kind of just back where we started in some ways with a lot more confusion on what's going to happen. And I think it's going to, you know, we're already seeing what's happening. Yeah. Um, there's people, you know, there was just a pharmacist recently that, I uh, forget where that was, but he refused to, you know, fill a prescription for someone because of his religious beliefs. And so, you know, and he thinks that because of the Supreme Court's ruling, um, that he's entitled to do that now. So I, yeah. uh, there's going to have to be. Well, we can't, uh, you know, expect this administration to educate and put out some PSs on that. Is that right? A PS um, <laughs> on uh, what, what's up, but uh, it's going to cause more conflict. And also, yeah. I mean, can't anybody define religion however they like? The, not, not necessarily. Mm. the The court has some standards that they set for that. I don't know the specific ones, but. They have they have a lot of a whole series of questions they'll ask people in in terms of that. Yeah, and additionally for uh, what might go into free expression, um, just the well, I rem- remember back when this case first opened the the whole question of does an individual like baking a cake count as Art. some form of religious practice or expression, and I mean that's. That was all actually detailed in uh, the the decision was that you know there this is incredibly broad and that and as you said Kevin like that that's why they wanted to make it very narrow was they realized that any sort of generalized statement here could be taken totally to an extreme mm-hmm. and so to just basically say you know let's just kind of you know, call a mulligan mm-hmm. almost and just say, like, this wasn't handled correctly and go back to square one. <laughs> Though yeah. I don't think no anyone's necessarily 100% happy with that answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that, as we said before, that it was a 7-2 decision. So there were two dissenters, Ginsburg and Sotomayor. And in the oral arguments for the case, Sotomayor uh, continuously circled back to the point that um, – that Phillips entering into uh, the field of business, opening up this cake shop, um, was therefore required to serve protected classes, which includes LGBTQ people uh, in Colorado, um, and therefore uh, he should have made the cake. Um, And I think that point in in some ways was kind of emphasized um, or or brought back up in in Kennedy's decision and where he kind of um, says that gay people have to be treated as equals. Um, and so I, I understand that people, you know, they're worried um, that this might spark something. Um, but the, the courts have a way of working these things out. And um, and again, I, it could have been a lot worse. I was very nervous when they first took up this case. I was hoping they'd throw it out to begin with. Um but uh, when they decided to take it up, um, especially coming off of the uh, nomination of another conservative justice on the court, it was not looking good for a while there. So I uh, me personally, I'm I'm called a draw. And I think that's what everybody's calling it at this time. <laughs> yep. So this past weekend, the 2018 Spencer Pride Festival took place in downtown Spencer. An estimated 3,000 people filled the courthouse lawn, participating in different activities and lots of live and local entertainment from various groups. 
New this year was Drag Queen Storytime, which took place in the Community Unity Center. Seeing so many youths listen to Pat Yo Weave, or uh, her formal name, Patricia Yolanda Weave, <laughs> uh, read, The Princess and the Pizza was wonderful, said Jonathan Balish of Spencer Pride. Uh, so many kids filled the gathering place, there was hardly any room for their parents. They had to stand at the edges of the room, spilling both into the meet- meeting room and the shop. The marketplace of festival booths was the largest in Spencer Pride history. 105 organizations participated this year. Food vendors, including Spencer Main Street, who sold out of their famous barbecue during the festival, and uh, the main stage, which was uh, sponsored by Ivy Tech Community College Bloomington, featured a diverse array of artists, from the youthful rock of Inkwell Moon to the worldly sounds of Adam Riviere. There was something for everyone this year. The trip returned for their second year at Spencer Pride, increasing their audience this year due to their growing popularity. The Coryland's Men's Chorus out of Bloomington has become a Spencer Pride staple over the years and introduced their new chorus director to the crowd. Different drummer belly dancers, the Retro Vales, Owen County Civic Theater, Zumba, and the soulful sound of Window to My Soul rounded out the lineup. And we cannot forget about the culmination of that day's entertainment with the Ladies of Spencer Pride Drag Show, which hosted five queens this year. The Spencer Pride Festival is the only place in the Midwest where a drag show is performed on a county courthouse lawn. (laughs) Yeah, so Frankie, I understand you and one of your sons, uh, Bailey, and some of his friends were out um, with Blooming Out at their at our booth there at Spencer Pride, and they even uh, volunteered to set up some vendor tents. And we understand that um, Wes, our executive director here at Blooming Out, um, and you conducted some interviews for our upcoming segment titled Coming Out Stories. So um, can you guys tell us a little bit about this new segment as well as some of your own highlights at this year's Spencer Pride event? Yeah, so uh, Alex and I and Wes all showed up very early, actually too early. <laughs> we had two hours, I guess, we showed up. But we got our, our stuff set up. Um, it was uh, th- This was my first uh, Spencer Pride. I had never been before, and I was pleasantly surprised and, and happy. I enjoyed the 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 everything i mean it was uh, definitely kind of a Mer- mayberry pride um you know they had lots of you know things for kids to do they had lots of activities for adults um the entertainment was awesome um we uh conducted interviews um alex and i and wes uh basically with, with our new segment that we're working on is um, coming out stories, which is you know what it is. <laughs> um, people you know giving short stories about or you know of, of when they came out and you know how they came out and what we're going to do over the year. Hopefully, we'll have enough uh, you know time uh, built up that we'll be able to play a segment a month until the next Pride. That's my my dream. We'll see what we can get enough interviews in on it. But I think we can do that. Um, and uh, we, we got about we got a good number of um, uh, time on on interviews and got to meet a lot of neat people. What do you think, Alex? Absolutely. Well, to me, I one Spencer Pride was a blast. <laughs> Other than getting a little bit too much sun and ending up looking like a lobster, I think you know this was more fun than I could have imagined. It was my first Pride event to ever go to, and just 
Spencer Pride, like, totally uh, exceeded my expectations. Uh, that being said, the interviews were great. I, um, I think it's sort of interesting. The one thing I was, frankly, a little disappointed is that we didn't get that many older folks, you know, from, you know, a well, generation. <laughs> Frankie's age. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, like, I, I really liked what we're trying to do with this idea. And personally, I think the idea of just sort of creating a greater humanizing element to the process of coming out is super important simply because it is during generally a very formative time in somebody's life. You're talking about one of the most sort of like major uh, personal identity questions one person might have and be able to put in a way to say, you know, it's okay to be you. Right. You know, these people have dealt with it and came out on the other side happier, more confident, you know, feeling more sort of at peace with their world. And I think that's sort of the encouragement people need sometimes when they feel like they're, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place because they're sort of split between the culture they know and their identity. Right, right. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, we're actually heading up to, we'll talk about that a little later on the show, but we're going to head up to Indianapolis. I'm going to do the same thing at Indianapolis Pride as well and hopefully do the same in the Bloomington Pride. Um, and then if any of our listeners out there would like to come in and record their coming out stories, we're going to also offer that as well. Um, we'll set something up if you guys uh, want to get a hold of us for that. But I think this is, you know, an incredible opportunity. It's something that's uh, history, you know, that people can go back and, and you know, and, and check out, you know, down the road. And um, it's just, a, I think, a really cool opportunity for everybody. All right. So we have to put a pin in this conversation for a moment while we take a few minutes to enjoy some music from our featured artist this week, Grizzly Bear. Tonight we will open with Gunshy by Grizzly Bear.
You are just listening to Grizzly Bear Gunshy. Welcome back to Blooming Out. We are welcome to have two amazing women visiting us in the studio today, Professor Susan Sizer and her wife, Catherine Brennan. Susan Sizer was born in Los Angeles, California. She went to college in New York City and graduate school in Chicago. Susan is a professor of anthropology at Indiana University. She moved to Indiana from California in 20, or 2016 to work at IU. Before that, she was an associate professor of anthropology and gender and women's studies at Scripps College in Claremont, California. Susan's expertise as a cultural anthropologist is in performance studies, and she has conducted ethnographic studies of live comedy performances in both South India and Southern Indiana. Catherine Brennan was born in Canberra uh, as the youngest of five kids. She proudly states, or she proudly states to the best parents ever. Her family lived in Tokyo for two and a half years until she was five when they made Canberra her home until 1972 when she moved to Dublin with her parents. Catherine finished high school there and went on to university. From 1978, she lived in Adelaide where she said she did a bunch of jobs until she decided to go to art school. Catherine scraped together a living cleaning houses and teaching art. She moved to Melbourne and completed a master's in fine arts at that location in 1996. And from there, er, er, excuse me, from there she moved to Los Angeles. And in 1998, she met Susan at Barack Obama's undergraduate alma mater. That would be Occidental. Uh, uh, Catherine and Susan have been together ever since through immigration uncertainties, health woes, political nastiness, and children. Susan and Catherine married in 2004 in San Francisco during Gavin Newsom's Month of Love. Their sweet baby Keith was born in March of that year, and Catherine said she learned a lot about herself and parenting. Susan, the world, she said she discovered her limits and have started to learn how to deal with them. Catherine feels parenting has been the hardest and most humbling thing she's ever done, apart from (laughs) sit-ups. Forrest was born in 2007, a year after the couple moved to Bloomington. She and Susie married post-Oberfell v. Hodges in 2004 in Los Angeles. Thank you for joining us, Susan and Catherine. I just want to clear up a couple dates there. We moved to Bloomington in 2006, ah. not 2016. And we got married first in 2004, and then again, that got annulled. That was a Gavin Newsom marriage in oh, the okay. month of love. And then we got married 10 years later in 2014 when Oberfell came through, and we were able to do, marry legally in California again. Nice. Wonderful. Mm. Well, thank you for being here, and thank you for clearing everything up there. (laughs) (laughs) So we brought you guys in to kind of talk about, well, not kind of, but to talk about for, you know, number one, same-sex relationships, about, you know, the trials and tribulations of of, of life, um, raising kids, 
careers, um, you know, setting it up and, you know, living just living your, your normal, quote, life out there. So I guess starting from kind of the beginning of, you know, the, the relationship and, and maybe even kind of getting your coming out stories, um, you know, of, of how I guess that's where it started, right? <laughs> maybe a little before then. You, you, were, you, were, you were someone before you came out. But, um, you know, it was kind of walking to that and then, you know, meeting one another and, and, and you know, developing this incredible life you guys have for you now. Well, I'm being pointed to, so I guess I'll start. Um, I was interested to um, listen to Frankie talking about coming out stories. And I've always wondered what mine was, you know, in a way, in the sort of multi, if you, you know, throw out the salt shaker of my adolescent life, um, <laughs> sexual relations and uh, relationships in general weren't centered around who, but rather just one great big what the fuck, you know? <laughs> and um, I, um, I don't have a coming out story. Um, uh, I was confused about a lot of things and then one day I met someone fabulous and she was a woman and uh, it was terrific and it's been that way ever since. And I've sometimes thought that, you know, uh, maybe I'm something else, but no, I'm not. So, you know, I guess it was... Uh, uh, it was I, it was a lot easier for me. I had an extremely supportive family. I came, lived in very supportive societies. Um, so you know, I'm boring. Uh, no, no. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Obviously, <laughs> I have a much more conventional American coming out story because I was at a women's college, um, Barnard College, uh -huh. and in 1980, me and a bunch of my friends, we all read. Adrian Rich's compulsory heterosexuality. Uh -huh. <laughs> and we just went, throwing it all down. <laughs> we all just came out en masse in 1980. Look out. Look out, yeah. So, so uh, how about with uh, the family? I mean, any, you know, throwback or was it, you know, it was, you, did they accept it? Or was oh, in 1980, um, you know, that was a pretty hard time. So, you know, those of us in college at that time who read Compulsory Heterosexuality was a little bit further along in our thinking right. around this. You had to catch your parents up. Yeah, had to catch your parents <laughs> up. So, yeah, my my mom, who has subsequently become a real advocate of gay and lesbian rights and queer rights and all everything, um, at that time she wanted to send me to a brainwashing, you know, institution. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And how old um, were you again? I was 20. 20. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you, you you came out, and then she was like, "We got to fix you." Actually, I was nineteen. Nineteen. Um, yeah, yeah. She thought they had to fix me, and um, but she gradually, you know, right, came mm. around. So no brainwashing. You were able to. I got away skip. with it. That's later on. Um, <laughs> so then, um, you know, you you both accomplished and did a lot, and you know, up to the point that you want another met each other. And then love at first sight. Rough enough, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. We were we were pretty pretty keen on each other from the beginning, um, and um, but for us, you know, things were. It wasn't easy for us because, of course, um, you may have noticed I'm a foreigner, and oh, really? um, my visas were running out, and you know, I had to make all those decisions about whether I, whether I was going to stay in the country and 
what that meant for our relationship. So, you know, some of the discussions that we were having about our future together were kind of forced, mm. um, which wasn't wasn't the best way to do it, I think. But, you know, it, it's, it, it's taken me, what, about 55,000 years to become <laughs> a citizen? <laughs> um, and it all kind of worked out. It was okay. Um, but, yeah, we were, we were pretty keen on each other. Yeah. It was pretty easy, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so then, then as far as you know, so did you think that you wanted to get married, or are you going to have a non-traditional relationship in the sense of what you know, gays back then? You know, we kind of made up our own story on what that was going to be. Yeah, um, I don't think I don't think we ever thought about getting married. Uh, but no, the, what, <laughs> what, the, the, the um, we got married the first time we were in L.A. We were living in L.A. We were already living together and we had actually already decided to adopt a child yes that's right we had already decided to adopt a child and um keith was in his bio mom's belly uh-huh. um and then uh so he was going to be bo- born in march so uh, wait let's back up a minute yeah. so how did we find keith and the mom how did we find keith was this uh, <laughs> 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 he, he, he came, yeah, came with the mom? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, uh, well, wait. First, I want to tell this story okay. about how we got married. First. Okay, you okay, and then we can go back. Um, so we were sitting on the couch reading the Saturday paper in L.A., and we read that Gavin Newsom, um, who, as we know, just won the primary in California, right? Right. Um, for the governor, but he was the mayor of Cal- of San Francisco at the time, and he had just decided that they were going to open up the um, the c- civil. Yeah, they were going to start issuing marriage licenses from San Francisco City Hall. Uh, from City Hall, that's right. Yeah. And in fact, that they were doing it. It yes. was Saturday. It was Saturday morning paper. So you like, open it up, you're reading we'll, this, and yes, you're we like, this, we got on we a went, plane. Oh, my God, we got to go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we literally bought tickets that day. We flew up the next morning, got married. It was so exciting because yeah. everybody was, there were lines around the block, like around the block three times, and we just... Um, Walked all the way around taking no, no, photographs no. of people. I, no, yeah, uh, we yeah. did that. But Susan, Susan is going to understate her role in our first marriage, and I'm not going to let her because there were there were queues all around down the Golden Gate Bridge. For God's sake, it was nuts. It was such a joyous, fantastic, optimistic thing that was happening. Yeah. And we were told again and again that no more licenses were going to be issued that day, and we should all just go home and carry our mood rings back to the hotel and have a nice <laughs> dinner and wait for society to change. And Susan wasn't going to have any of this. As you may have noticed, Susan doesn't have anything of much, really. <laughs> anyway, Susan went up to the front door in her wheelchair, looking <laughs> determined and said, I need to use the bathroom. <laughs> and once she was through those doors, that was it. <laughs> well, that was fantastic. Oh, wait, I have to say, I got in through the doors, and then I said to the guy, my partner's just waiting right outside. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. And he said, oh, yo, she can come in. Yeah. She can come in. And I was like, we're in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he we looked at in. me, this guy, he was covered in guns and truncheons and metal and brown uniform with this grin as wide as the streets. It was, it was fantastic. He said, last I heard, takes two to get married. Come on in. <laughs> it was awesome. It was great. It was so, great. so then that happened. And then... Yeah. Um, so did they, um, you signed the license, you paid for the license, and did they just do it right there? Yeah, they or did it right there. They did right and they had um, people designated 
Witnesses. Witnesses. Yes. How many people do you do you remember the numbers of what no. they said? I mean, I thousands. Thousands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was something like three thousand people got married that day. Right. Couples. I mean, that weekend. Right. And then it continued for that month. Right. The month of February. Um, it was very exciting. Really wonderful. I mean, there were people who had been together for fifty years waiting in the right, line. Right. Right. Yeah. Lots of stories. That's where I should have. So been. many so beautiful, extraordinary, beautiful stories. Quite extraordinary. And then but, uh, what did you do? Did you go have dinner or meet with a friend? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, we we did. We went back to our hotel, and then we got a call on our flip phones, and um, <laughs> it was Keith's bio mum saying, oh, we were "I'm pregnant. in town." Yes. We were pregnant. That's <laughs> yeah, why we're getting right. married. That's right. That's right. We'll go back to that. Don't worry. <laughs> well, we had we, I had actually texted her some photos from the line, okay. and I yes. said we're in San Francisco because she was in San Jose. Okay, she lived in San Jose. And so I had just texted her like, wow, we're here in San Francisco. We're getting married. You know, and I showed her the everything. And then, you know, she knocked on the door at midnight of our hotel room. And she's just, like, where are you staying? She's knocked on the door at midnight with her big belly. And she's like, surprise. Oh, you guys must have flipped. <laughs> um, you know. And um, so basically Keith was there on our wedding night. That's um, exciting. You know, in, in her belly. And um, then he was born um, six weeks later. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So then let's kind of go backwards okay. a little bit. So we'll get up to, uh, you know, f- you know, ha- just having the conversation, deciding that, you know, you, you wanted a baby, I guess, at this point, And you wanted mm-hmm. a baby. Mm. Um, and so how did that go? So you, you were together how long then by the time? We had been together for six years. Six years, yeah. yes. I think, that, I think that's right, yes. We, we decided, I don't know. I mean, we used to joke with each other about how cute children were and we always liked them and Susie's brother was in a marriage and they were having children and we loved them and you know we kind of just wanted to expand the relationship you know we felt like we had a ton of love to Mm. throw around and we wanted to throw it at children and uh Mm. um but the the path to getting there was interesting as you know as you know frankie um no nothing about no nothing about (laughs) it um and we started exploring how to go about doing this and uh you know we both of us tried to get pregnant and bumped up against the realities of our biological states, and then uh, it just, you know, realised that adoption was a perfectly fine option. Thank you very, very much, and uh, contacted an agency in Los Angeles and started talking to them. We first started out trying to do an international adoption, which, uh, for various reasons, didn't work out. Um, and given, given, you know, given Keith and Forrest, I'm, I'm damn glad. Yeah, but um, also, also glad to know because they're so fraught, actually. Yes, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I don't have to deal with that ethical mm-hmm. set of ethical problems. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's and un- deal with the ones that we do deal with. Mm-hmm. Sometimes where, whether the kids, you know, whether the moms really wanted to give up the kids. Yeah, right, right, so, right, the, right. so that that whole set of conundrum that that happens for international adoptees and um, adoptive parents is we. We avoided that. We, at first, we were very uncertain of what an open adoption mm. um, in the U.S. would look like. Mm. And but we quickly came to learn like it's a really wonderful thing. Um, and we, well, you know, we met. So so the way it works is, um, we we actually um, found a lawyer who d- specializes in adoption and. Um, we made a pamphlet. We had to like make a pamphlet, which was <laughs> probably the hardest thing I've ever had to write. Um, yes. Um, and we it, we took a long time, but we made this hot pink pamphlet, which we stitched <laughs> together by hand. Um, and we thought 
there's no way that anyone will ever pick us because I'm in a wheelchair. We both have gray hair. We're both older and we're lesbians. So we're like, okay, well, we'll turn in this pamphlet and like we can just wait a few years. And then we got picked right away by this mom who, you know, when we So how her, long? I mean, when you say right like away. Like six weeks. So maybe. Less, no, we less, made the pamphlets. We, yes, it was ridiculous. We sent the pamphlets up. We had an argument about the content. And then <laughs> two days later, they were calling us up saying, there's this person this woman who could, yeah. Right. Um, well, there, there was a first person. Do you remember? There was a first mom, but she had been convicted Ooh. of arson. Okay. Yes. And we oh. were like, I'm going to give that one a miss. <laughs> right. And yeah. then um, and then the second mom. And, um, yeah, that was kind of amazing. And, and when the the lawyer said, well, why did, why did you pick them? Because the lawyer knew that we were really not expecting to be picked at all. And she said, I just like them. They look happy. Oh, <laughs> <You know? Aww. laughs> we're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, we met her. We drove up and met her, and we really liked her, too. And it turns out that um, we're Scorpio and Ta- we're um, Libra and Taurus. And so were the birth mom and dad. Oh wow, Libra and Taurus. <laughs> and when she got goosebumps when she when she saw that, and she was like, "It's meant to be." Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was it was very clear um, throughout her whole pregnancy that right. you know she was really doing this. She she people would stop her on the street and say, you know, "Oh, when's your baby due?" And she'd say, "It's not my baby. It's wow. theirs." Wow. So she yeah. was really clear. She was ready yeah. for it. Yeah. How, so so you were right there from you know. Pretty close to conception yeah. at this point. Yeah, yes, it was, uh, three months in. Wow. Three months in, and yeah. she lived with us for the last oh wow six okay. weeks of of um of her, her pregnancy. pregnancy. So you were right Angeles. there when baby came. We caught yeah. him. Yes, oh, wow. it was yeah. fantastic. It was just it was just that it was just us two at either knee, our <laughs> <laughs> giving ba- birth uh-huh. and the midwife. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So uh, you did this at home? No, no, oh, you in the hospital. hospital. Okay, okay. Well, and then and then popped Keith. Yeah. Yeah. How awesome. And so then um, how was that? So did we have um, – well, actually, we need to take a uh, – stop for a minute and take a, a break, a music break, and then a, com- a community events uh, moment, okay. and then we'll come right back. If this night bleeds 
Welcome back. Uh, we're going to take a look at the community calendar real quick, see what's going on this weekend. Um, let's see, Friday, June 8th, um, there's volunteer orientation at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, and that's at 1100 West Allen Street, Bloomington, Indiana. Um, Mother Hubbard's needs volunteers for their services there, um, so that's, at, that's June 8th, Friday, at noon till 1 p.m. And uh, let's see here. There's an open mic series at the Art Sanctuary at 109 North Sycamore Street, Martinsville. Um, open mic at the Art Sanctuary. It's from 7 till 9 p.m. on Friday. Uh, free admission and refreshments. Sign-ups for 10-minute slots begin at 6 p.m. All right, now we're going to take it back to Blooming Out. Welcome back to Blooming Out. We are back with our guests, Susan and Catherine. How about we pick up where we left off? I, I think it was right after the birth of Keith. So that was each, each one had a knee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. each one. We were pushing. <laughs> Keith's coming. <laughs> so sort of how did things change once you two became parents? Well, kind of radically, um, kind of radically and kind of not. I mean, you know, a newborn baby lies there looking gorgeous and eating, um, and that's Keith was no different. But then, you know, um, we had to kind of divvy up the labor, I guess, you know. And uh, Susan was the one with the, the job, and uh, so Susie did her job, and I did the, the home stuff. I was, and one of us had to be compass mentor, so I was the person who mostly got up at night to do the night feeds and, um, you know, 
Susan still owes me about 3,000 nappy changes. <laughs> um, but, the, but that's okay, Susan. I can forgive a debt. <laughs> um, For the rest of your life. That's right. <laughs> um, and in a way, you know, that was not something that we ever anticipated. And I think, I think that... Did you have other girlfriends that had babies at this time? Or were you guys the first to kind of... No, you know, having kids puts you in contact with other people who have kids. But we had nothing. Yeah. We we hadn't had talked to other people who'd done this. We had no. And, and adoption was the way you didn't want to have natural. Well, we tried. We thought first. about it. We thought about okay. it. I mean, Catherine tried. Um, but I mean, we were older. Right. Yeah. Right. Like we were over tw- over forty five. Right. So I mean, huh. it was kind of a right yeah. long, really right. long. I, right. And I'm I'm so glad. I mean, yes. I'm right. glad yeah, your baby's I, there. It was the, waiting for the you. The gene pool over here is pretty shallow. <laughs> I mean, I, just, yeah, I no, I feel, I feel, you know, philosophically, I I feel pretty wedded to adoption in general. I mean, right. I think there are babies out there that need homes. Right. Yeah. Um, they already exist. Right. And I really love that adoptive moms like um, the bio mom of our two two kids. You know, she recognized that she. Um, well, we joke that she's fertile as a turtle. I mean, she had <laughs> she was pregnant twelve times. Wow! She lost some in miscarriage, wow. but she did have four live births and some abortions. And you know, she um, recognized that she really couldn't take care of the kids, so she was really looking for a good home mm-hmm. for her kids. And she saw that in us, and that was really satisfying to know that she saw that in us. Most of my friends don't have kids. Like my most of my lesbian friends mm-hmm. from my life as a lesbian artist in New York City and all that stuff. Um, They don't have kids, so it was kind of going out on the limb. Were you guys, uh, I know with, you know, Kelly and I, when we, you know, started with our babies that we lost some of our friends because they just couldn't relate, not because Mm. they didn't like us. There's just nothing to really relate. Did that, you know, kind of rearrange your friendship circle when babies came, or did you have a pretty supportive and, you know, you know, my, maybe my women friends, are a little different than guys. Yeah, I mean, they <laughs> so were really they were really supportive, but um, like Catherine said, um, y- it brings you into the orbit of many other parents. Right, right. And yeah. so we made new friends, and they tended to be straight, straight friends, right? You know? yeah, that's usually. Um, so most of my lesbian friends still do not have kids. Okay, um, they're artists, and they've c- continued with their lives. I mean, because like I say, I mean. I was already an adult person, and so was Catherine. Like right. We were in our 40s. Right. So, you know, pretty much our friends were already had already decided right. to not right. be parents, and so we decided late. Um, and, you know, our parents liked – I mean, I'm sorry. Our kids like to hold that over our heads that, you know, we're the <laughs> oldest parents out there. Right. <laughs> well, something that you – well, you guys look gorgeous, I want to say. <laughs> gorgeous. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give you that. Um, so baby comes. Um, Susan, you go off to work. You stay home. Um, when, then you – did you think that you wanted baby number two? At, or was it just, you know – something that you guys wanted how did how did that work out well we moved here in 2006 so keith was two and um we lived here for a year and then i said to Catherine, i think we should get a sibling for this child (laughs) and she said no way (laughs) (laughs) and i worked on her um I don't know if you remember. Yeah, it the same I do. Way. I do remember it. I do remember it because I, it, it returns to this business of Susan working and me not. You know, <laughs> I I um I was with Keith a lot and Susan was not. Mm-hmm. And um, 
she felt like she felt like she didn't get to be a parent enough and um and we thought she wanted another child um and i said okay the best way to do this or we agreed that the best way to do this was to proceed as if we agreed on the matter okay. um, <laughs> so we, we started started talking to lawyers again and uh um and then we would make a decision when the decision presented itself. That's that's how we decided. And we called Keithy's bio mom and said, um, you know, we're thinking of having another child. And uh, she said, well, you know, funny you should mention that, but I'm seven months pregnant. <laughs> and, oh, wow. And um, would you be willing? And we said, well, yeah. No time to prepare. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I mean I, as I remember that conversation, it was that I called her up and I said, yeah. You know, if, if you or any of your friends get pregnant again, let us know because we're really interested in another child. And she said, oh, really? Well, I'm pregnant right now. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. and um, then it was like, oh, well, what were you planning to do with the kid? And she said, call you guys, I guess. <laughs> um, but it didn't sound very, um, didn't sound very much like that was a real plan. But in any case, we flew out there and... Um, and there was our second child, who's a half sibling to Keith. So that's Forrest. That's awesome. He was born mm. in two thousand seven. And there you go. So, so they're how far apart in age? Three and a half years. And three. Apart. Yeah, three and a half years going on about a hundred. I think right. you know, yeah, it depending goes, on who's talking about it. It goes <laughs> so fast. Yes. You know, just you know, raising the kids and and you know our you know our, our kids go to the school together I'll just throw that out there and it's been fun you know m one of my sons uh, Gabrielle kind of thinks of these ladies as their second or first mom they don't have a second <laughs> mom so they're number one and you know they're, they're fantastic <coughs> people and they have a great thing going and I was really excited you know when I asked them to come on the story is is, is you know I, there's there's so much more to it and I apologize that we ran out of time um, those darn cakes <laughs> 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 kind of ran long um, so I would have loved to spend a little more time so we'll have to ha definitely have you back and um, <clears throat> so um, thank you so much for, for being part, of, part of Blooming Out um, an additional thank you to all of our listeners and volunteers who make this possible Blooming Out is produced by Frankie Presloff. Our executive producer is WFHB News Director Wes Martin. Lucas is our engineer. For Blooming Out and WFHB, I'm Kevin Mosenzade. I'm Frankie Presloff, wishing everyone a wonderful Pride Month. And remember, if everything was straight, roller coasters would be one long, boring ride. Good night from all your Blooming Out family. <coughs> You've been listening to Blooming Out on WFHB. Blooming Out is a product of WFHB's News and Public Affairs Department. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 p.m. for Indiana's only LGBTQ plus news and public affairs program. You can hear this and other programs online at WFHB.org. Comments and suggestions for future topics or guests can be sent to bloomingout at WFHB.org. That is blooming O-U-T at W-F-H-B dot O-R-G. And thank you for listening.